Good morning. My name is Howard, and I'm one of the elders here at First Baptist Church, Medford, Oregon. And also get to be a privilege of being one of the adult Sunday school teachers, which we have three adult Sunday school classes at 9 o'clock. Get you prepared for the business meeting on the 3rd. Get you used to it. Today I'm reading in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 16. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is our word. You may be seated. Howard? Good morning. My name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. Let's begin in prayer before we jump into the word this morning. God, we are grateful for the opportunity to be here together, but especially with you. And our prayer is this morning, God, that you might, by your spirit, open our eyes to the truth of who you are and what you are doing in the world around us and especially in our own hearts. And we know, Lord, that um, a lot of us carry a lot of burdens. I could think of a couple of people in particular I wanted to pray for this morning. I pray for uh, Diane Nelson, took a tumble yesterday, and I'm glad she's at home. But we pray, God, you'd get her to full health. And I pray for Josh and Alicia as Josh uh, approaches that time where he will see you shortly. And we pray for Lorraine and Dave Crawford. Ask God that the test coming up will show that the treatment has been effective and that you would provide help for them. God, we pray as we look at your word this morning that you would make us like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 14 through 16. So whenever our, our life, think of your life for a minute, whenever your life kind of intersects or crosses your understanding of God. In those moments, you have your understanding of God in your head, in your mind. You say, oh, I know what God is like. Perhaps you have some notion of what God is like. And then you have what your life is like, and occasionally those two things cross. And occasionally you say, oh, I didn't know this was a, an option. I didn't know this was, you know, and, and you'll ask, usually this pops into your mind, well, if God is this, then why this? Have you ever done that? Well, just on weekdays and weekends, right? <laughs> your life is happening and your understanding of God is happening and we often really find ourselves struggling or working or thinking, how do I reconcile the realities of my life and what I understand to be God, God to be like? Because those two realities sometimes seem at odds. And, and sometimes you might think, you know, well, this should be simpler than it is. This, this seems complicated. This seems uh, difficult. So th the reality is we want to understand God. We want to kind of understand what he's up to. And this is beyond just merely understanding facts about God. Because we could list some things about God that are true, right? We know God is powerful, correct? Yeah, okay. And then God created everything that is. And he made mankind in his own image. And God is one, there's one God, but he's in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we could say God is all-knowing because he knows all the things. If, thing, if something is known, he knows it. Uh, we also would say God is all-powerful. So everything he wants to do, he does. Because somebody said one time, this is just, I was thinking, they said, could, could God make a rock so big that he couldn't lift it. And some brilliant atheists come up with this. And I'm not, nothing against, I'm not saying atheists aren't smart. They are very, very smart. But uh, God's not an idiot. Like we understand this, right? I mean, so why would God make a rock so big that he, that, that's, that's foolish. So anything God wants to do, God can do. And anything God doesn't want to do, he doesn't do, right? How do you do on that regard? Right, terrible, me too. So we can list these facts about God, but if you list facts about God, you understand God. And we know that's not true. And you would say that about any relationship you have in your life, just simply because you, when you know 
some details of a person's life, their occupation or, or their family or uh, where they live, that doesn't mean you understand the person. Understanding a person is very different than knowing things about a person. The Bible wants us to understand God, but what we discover in this short passage this morning, understanding God is hard. And we want to ask this question, here's the question, is why is it so hard to understand God? Why is that so hard to understand God? And the passage actually tells us why it's so hard and gives us an understanding of what needs to be true for us that we might have understanding of God. So, first thing I want to touch on is just verse 14. You start here in verse 14. I, I want to also calm some of your nerves. Some of you are worried that because we only have three verses that this message will be short. But some of you have also been here long enough to know the number of verses being covered is not correspond to the length of the message. So, why is, under, why is it so hard to understand God? Because we don't want God's help to know him. So if you've ever had a, a small child working on a game or a puzzle or Legos, putting something together, working on it, and this kid is working on it, and, and they're struggling with it, having trouble building the thing with the Legos, or having trouble putting together the puzzle. And so then you come over to uh, the kid, and you say, hey, want me to give you a hand with that? Most of the time, you are going to get a strong, no. No, I want to do it. I want to accomplish this. I want to figure this out. So even though you can observe that clearly, based on all objective evidence, watching this child ex executing this task, or at least attempting to, they need help. They need help. That, that goes without saying. By observing what's happening, they need help. But even though they clearly need help, they refuse it. They don't want it. And this is what's true of us in relation to God is while on the one hand we may want to know God, in fact, I would suggest that it's built in the heart of every person who's ever lived, a desire to want to know God. Even though we want to know God, we don't want his help to do it. I would even say a chief symptom of a person who is not spiritual is a desire to live independent of God. That's the, the primary thing that's going on in the human heart that has created a distance between us and God is this desire to lead my life independent of God. I don't want to rely on God. I don't want to have to need God. I don't want to have to pursue God. I want to live independent of God. The reality is, and this is what the, the verse in verse 14 is going to show us, when we live independent of God, the things of God to us will seem foolish. So when we separate ourselves from God, which is the, what humans do, the things of God, when we look at them, we'll go, well, that looks, that's dumb. And that's what the Bible tells us. So look at the first part of verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Okay, we're going to stop just right there. A couple of things in this verse just to look at. The first thing, notice, he calls this person the natural person. Another way of saying this from the original would be a person of the flesh. And this is a, a spiritual term that Paul uses both here and a lot in the book of Romans, describing a person living their life independent of the things of God. So a person of the flesh is pursuing their own interests, their own desires. It's not merely a description of their physical body, it's a description of a person who wants to live independent of God. I don't care what God's up to. I'm going to do things my way. And that's a, the natural person. The natural person says, I don't want God's things. I want my things. And to the natural person, the natural person doesn't accept the things of God. This is, what, this is true of all people absent the work of God. We don't accept the things of God. In fact, the things of God seem foolish. Now, when you see a word like things of God, what you ought to do when you're reading your scripture is to get, say this, things of God. What's the, what's the question you want to ask? What things? That seems a little vague. Just things, the things of God. Are we talking about a, a collection of porcelain elephants? I don't, you know, I assume God has knickknacks and I don't know why porcelain elephants, but I don't know. It's the way my head works. Things of God. This is in the context of 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. We've been talking about it. And you want to hear the messages? They're online. I'm not going to preach them again. He's talking about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's been describing to the, to the people in, in the first couple of chapters here. Is the things of God here and specifically is the good news of the gospel. And the gospel is relatively simple and yet not readily accepted or understood. So God created everything. That's what the Bible tells us. God creates everything, including people made in his own image. And we decided to be independent of God. We wanted to live separate from God, so we rebelled against him. We rebelled against him by saying, we want your stuff, but not you. We want your food. We want your planet. We want your stuff, but we want to have all of the stuff that you have made, and we'd like you to go on vacation permanently. That's what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, saying the tree of knowledge of good and evil was delightful to eat. It looked good, and it also provided information, wisdom, that if they had that wisdom, they wouldn't need God anymore. So this is what everybody does. Everybody does it. Is we, we wish that we could live absent of God, have God just stay out of our business, and we could live without him, but we want all the stuff he made, though. Leave your stuff, go away. And so this is what God creates, and then we ruin it by abandoning God. Now the next element is this, God decides he wants this relationship with us restored. He wants relationship with us. Why? He's bored? No, he loves us. It's because he has affection for us. When he sees us, he desires to have a relationship with us in spite of the fact that we refuse or choose not to have a relationship with him. So he determines that there's a means by which this relationship can be restored is he will pay the cost for our rebellion against him because the cost for that rebellion is death. Instead of us dying, he dies on our behalf. So God himself comes and dies as Jesus dies on the cross, therefore paying the penalty for our sin Rises from the dead, so therefore anybody who trusts him can have eternal life and forgiveness of sin. However, this means one thing though. If you want to participate in the gospel, what does that mean you want? Not God's stuff, what? You want God. That's tricky. We don't want God. But that's what the gospel does. The gospel fixes the problem. The problem is we don't want God, but the gospel provides the means for us to have him. So God did not fix the problem the way we wanted. We wanted the problem to be we don't need you, but we still live forever. And God says, no, to live forever, you need me. So this is the gospel. The reason this is really, really important, number one, we should always be reminded of the gospel because we're sinners and we always need to be reminded of the gospel. And I know, I'm talking about the sinners who aren't here today, not you. <laughs> the other thing is we tend to think of the gospel only as... Jesus died and rose again. What's the gospel? Jesus died and rose again. But no, that's not, that's only a part of it. Why did Jesus die? Because we rebelled. We rejected God. So it's in order for the good news of the gospel to be good news, there needs to be a problem that it fixes. And the problem is we don't want relationship with God. That's the natural man. What's really, really important as you read this is it says the natural person does not accept the things of God. It is not saying the natural person, you know the neighbor who won't keep his, his yard up or whatever it is. What we tend to think the natural person is that guy. That's what, and, and that's not what this is for. The natural person is anybody living in that current, that trajectory of I want to do things my way, not God's way. So a, a person who is not a believer by definition is going to be a natural person. But some of us as believers are saying, oh, well, thank goodness that's not me. You're right, that's not who you are, but my guess is sometimes that's how you live. So the natural person is, is the person who's living where the value system is not, I don't care what God wants, I want it this way. That's, what a that's the way a natural person says, I know what God wants, but I want it this way. Has anybody here everybody done that? Ever done that? Okay. <laughs> It's Thanksgiving, you've got extended family coming in. It's about to be on. You're gonna, you're gonna have a whole lot of, when are they leaving, right? That's the natural person. Uh, dinner's done, uh, time to head on back to Sheboygan or wherever you came from. And, uh, and you say, well, that's not natural. That's just me wanting my house back. Oh, it's your house now. Oh, okay, I, I didn't realize. I thought God might have provided that house for you. And you're right, God only hangs out with people he likes being with. Right? God only hangs out with cool kids. See, when we think, how does God think about others? It might, it might change our natural thinking. 
right? So, so we have to understand, when you talk about the natural person, it's not the bad person down the street or the guy at work that you don't like. He's trying to get us to analyze our own hearts. Are you thinking God's way or the natural person way? And the natural person way is our default. It's, it's weird for people not to be natural. That's, he's saying that's your normal. What's weird is to, to stop and say, I need to think differently. I want to be spiritual. And, th- and what we're saying is, it's hard to understand God. That's hard. That's difficult. It requires more than self-control. So, what we have to understand is, this notion of the gospel, that I'm a natural person that pursues my own things, is folly to a person without the Spirit. Let me explain. Sin and the need for forgiveness by God for the natural person without the Holy Spirit informing their heart is ridiculous. The normal way we want to understand sin is we, everybody is willing to admit we do bad things, aren't we? I think this is, you know, I have yet to meet a person who thinks they're perfect. However, here's how we like to think about sin. Number one, the sin that I have committed, it ain't that bad. Right? It's not that bad. It's bad. Don't get me wrong. It's bad. But it's not that bad. And what we generally want to do then in that situation, okay, I've done something bad, so I need to think of something that I haven't done that's worse. And, and you know you're in a bad spot when you say, well, at least I'm not Hitler. I mean, <laughs> setting the bar kind of low. But you'll, well, I, you know, I sped, but I, you know, I didn't kill anybody. Or I hit them with my car, but they're going to recover. We're always... We're just, they're laughing because they didn't want to admit it was them. We're, we're, always, or we're always just sort of establishing, well, but at least I didn't that. But if we did that, we would just, well, but at least I didn't. I thought the word, I didn't say it. Oh, I said it, but I didn't say that one. You know, and so we're always justifying that our sin is okay because it wasn't something else. The other way that we, we deal with this is we say, uh, we can make up for it. So I've done something that has harmed somebody. I can imagine a way in which I can make up for it. Maybe I can atone for it by paying them back for the damage I caused, if I caused property damage. Maybe, though, if I caused emotional damage, I can look for ways to mend the relationship by doing something special, buying a gift, giving up something of my own time to extend the olive branch of peace. So try to, over the course of time, reestablish trust in the relationship. So I might imagine that even though I've done something wrong, I have the means to atone for it with that person. And these are all ways in which we say, sure, I have sinned. I have done something wrong. I have harmed somebody, but it can be fixed. And who can fix it? I can fix it. That I can do that. That's not what this is saying. This is saying you have done something wrong, it cannot be fixed. It's ruined. It's done. The way the Bible describes it in Romans chapter 3 is it's dead. You're dead. The one you sinned against is dead. And now, in fact, creation is dead. Now, for those who have the Holy Spirit, they say, yes, I understand that. That's what the Bible teaches, and that's true. But we have to understand the natural way of thinking. We say, that's taking, come on, simmer down. That's, that's a little over the top. In order for us to understand how bad our sin is, there's only one way to understand the extent of your sin and my sin. How do you do that? You look at the cross. If your cross is tame, then your sin is tame. So the cross is necessary for any and all sin. Let's just say, for example, you're the only person on planet Earth and you only sinned once, the cross would still be necessary. It would, the, the cross would still be necessary. That's the extent. That's what the Bible is saying. The natural person doesn't accept that. The natural mind hears that and says, that's dumb. Since it's not that bad what I have done. And the Bible is trying to recalibrate our understanding of rebellion against God and say, look at the cross that is an accurate representation of your sin against God. And that's why it's hard to understand God. Because even as I'm going through this, some of us are going, that seems a little over the top. Like, God, get some thick skin, man. Like, simmer down. I just told a little lie. Everybody lies. See what I did? Got to justify it. 
Your sin, in order to understand God, the first thing we need to understand, it requires the Holy Spirit. Your sin was bad enough that it put Jesus on the cross. That's what was necessary. The good news is, though, is you rose from the dead and it says it's for you. And if you'll trust me, your sin is atoned for, covered, forgiven. You're good. We can't make up for our sin. The only way our sin can be made right is through the gospel. And the person without the work of the Holy Spirit will call that folly. Look at the second part of verse 14. He is not able to understand them. He's talking about the things of God, the gospel, because they are spiritually discerned. God's things require the spirit. We cannot figure out the things of God through worldly philosophy. That's the way the people of the church in Corinth were trying to figure out the things of God. They're reading the biggest books, the most brilliant philosophers. They would sit around and discuss new and interesting ideas about God. And what the Apostle Paul is telling them is, no, the things of God are understood through the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a person with low intelligence can understand them and a person with high intelligence can understand them. But it is only understood not by the faculties of our intellect or the intuition of our hearts. They are understood because the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our heart to see the reality of our spiritual condition. That is the way it works where we understand what God is like and what's necessary to have a relationship with Him. They're spiritually discerned. We cannot figure them out through worldly philosophy or by trusting our own intuition spiritually. Our spiritual intuition without the work of the Holy Spirit is broken. Our spiritual intuition without the work of the Holy Spirit is broken. I want to show you an example of this in the Older Testament. It's 1 Samuel 15. I don't have it up on the screen because it's really a whole, the whole chapter. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to highlight a couple of things about 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, the king of Israel is a guy named Saul. The Lord went over to King Saul and he said, I need, you to, uh, I need you to destroy the Amalekites. The Amalekites were related to the stalactites. And they weren't. I just had to make sure you're awake. The Amalekites had uh, tried to destroy the people of Israel while they were wandering around in the wilderness. Now, thankfully, God gave the people of Israel victory over the Amalekites by a miraculous work of God's power through Joshua. But what God told Moses when that happened, he said, write this down. The Amalekites need their comeuppance. They need to get smacked upside the head. And so God now is coming around to this. Time has passed, and he has come to King Saul. This meant many years later, obviously. And he's saying, you know what? It's time for the Amalekites to be punished for what they did to the people of Israel when they are wandering in the wilderness. So, King Saul, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go attack the Amalekites. And I need you to destroy them. Destroy the Amalekites. How many Amalekites are supposed to be left when you're done? Zero. How many is zero? None. How many is none? They're all dead. How many should be dead? All the Amalekites should be dead. How many animals should be left? All the animals should be dead. This is scorched earth, judgment for re rejecting God and his people, and so judgment has come. So, King Saul went out, and he is going to destroy them. And he wins. Yay! Victory. And he keeps all the best animals. Why? Because they're tasty. And he keeps some of the people alive, including Agag the king. God goes to Samuel the prophet. Do you know who Samuel is? You've heard of this guy? God says this to... Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king. He's turned back from following me, has not performed my commandments. So Samuel's upset. He prays all night. He goes out and meets King Saul. And King Saul says this to Samuel, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the command of the Lord. Had, had King Saul performed the command of the Lord? Not all the way. He had sort of. He had partially. So partial obedience is still... Disobedience. Also, late obedience is disobedience. All right, anyway. Blessed be you, I have completed the command of the Lord. And Samuel said this. I wish I could have been there. Oh, it would have been. Because Samuel goes this. What then is this bleating of sheep I hear in my ears? I'm sure he would have put his hand up. Sorry, what is, what is that? I mean, so it's, it's patently obvious. He hadn't, he hadn't done it. There's still sheep alive. You're, all the sheep are supposed to be dead. It's not complicated math. Here, get out your calculator. All of them minus all of them equals zero. 
You're supposed to all be dead. What is this bleeding of sheep of, I hear in my, and, and it, is that an ox? Did you keep alive some oxes? Oxen? Oxen I? <laughs> Here was Saul's response. Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spread the best of the sheep and the oxen for a sacrifice to the Lord. So really, I did it for Jesus. That's what Saul said. I know Jesus isn't born yet. Stop it. The rest, though, the rest, we did almost all of them. Almost all of them we killed, but we kept some of them for the Lord. So it's very spiritual. It's very spiritual. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? What is this evil you have done, Samuel says to King Saul. Here, listen to King Saul. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Okay, do you see the difference? They're both looking at the same piece of information. One of them understands the Lord. One of them just simply does not. He, he thinks he's obeyed. It's not that he's... He, 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 he's, no, I, I went out and I, I did what the Lord said and I kept some of them for an, a sacrifice. I don't understand the problem. He said, I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission. I brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. He doesn't even hear what he's saying. Wait, no, you didn't. If the king is still alive, they're not devoted to destruction. Samuel says this. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen better than the fat of rams. So King Saul has saved some of the animals for a sacrifice. Now, why would you need a sacrifice? Why do you sacrifice? Because you've offended God and you want to please him. So here's an idea. How about don't offend God? then you don't need a sacrifice. How about just do what you're told and then a sacrifice is unnecessary. This is the Apostle Paul saying, or not the Apostle Paul. This is, get your email out now, just do it. This is Saul saying, oh no, what, the way I'm going to worship God, he loves it when we ask for forgiveness. So I'm going to sin so I can ask for forgiveness really, really well. He'll love that. And God is saying, actually what I'd love is if you just didn't sin. The, the thing is, Saul thinks the way God wants things done are foolish. He's, it's not that he's just being rebellious. He just thinks God's an idiot. The way you want to do things, God, are ridiculous. I did obey. I wasn't that bad. And, and in fact, even if I was a little bad, it's okay. I have the means to make up for my sin by making an offering. I'll make it right. God will be fine. The things of God to the natural person, are foolish. And that's precisely what's happening in the church of Corinth. That's precisely what happens in the heart of every person. God says, the only way to know me is for the spirit to bring to your heart and mind the reality your sin is killing you. And it will successfully one day finish the job. And the only way for you to be freed from the cost of your sin is to allow somebody else to bear that cost by trusting Jesus. And the reality is, for the natural person, that sounds silly. The spiritual person hears that and says, thank you, Lord, for saving someone like me. God is hard for us. We want to know God on our terms. We want God to meet our expenses, our expectations. We want God to answer our questions. And from that point of view, where God is trying to be fit into our understanding, it's always going to be hard, if not impossible, to understand God. In effect, God will seem foolish to us from that perspective. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look at the last two verses of this section. If we want to know God on his terms, we need a lot of help. So, why is it so hard to understand God? First, first thing we want to understand from verse 14, we don't really want God's help. Next two verses, it's not complicated. The outline is really, really simple. We need God's help. Why is it hard to understand? Because we don't want God's help. But in fact, we need God's help. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. Verse 15. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. So if you're a college student, you want to pursue a particular profession. So you want to be an engineer or an architect or go into medicine or maybe law. 
One of the best ways to do that successfully is to find the school that has the best program for that thing. So say you want to be an architect. You look at the colleges around the country, what's the best school of architecture out there and see if I can get into that program. Maybe you want to be an attorney. Uh, My understanding is Rogue Community College has a great program, uh, jurisprudence, uh, Harvard, whatever. I'm kidding, it's the opposite. I don't know, some of you don't get that joke. Harvard's the good one. So, uh, so you say, I want to go to the, if, if I want this understanding, of, if I want to be in this profession and have this education and have the best chances of success, then, then the program of education at this particular school is, is the best way to get that. God, by his spirit, is not only the best way, it's the only way to know God. God, by his spirit, is the best way and the only way to know God. The spiritual person wants to know God and the spiritual person depends on God to be able to grasp his things. And that word for dependence, of course, is faith. When we trust God, and this is what the Bible is going to tell us, we then have the mind of Christ. The ability to think and understand the things of God. Verse 15. The spiritual person judges all things. The spiritual person, the one who has the power of the Holy Spirit in them, they can know the things of God and understand the working of God. And in regard to God, no naturally minded person could hold judgment over that person. Look at verse 15. He says, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself judged by no one. Now throughout chapters 1 and 2, The Apostle Paul is contrasting the spiritual person and the unspiritual person. And what he is saying is the person who is depending on God, the Holy Spirit, to bring to mind the things of God, that person is going to have, by God's grace and the truth of his word, the ability to, to discern and understand God's things. And a person who is naturally minded will not be able to stand in judgment over that person and say, well, you don't know what you're talking about. And ultimately, how do we know that a spiritual person is validated in their understanding of the things of God. And that validation comes at the end of all things. The spiritual person will stand with God in relationship with him, and those who have rejected God will not, unfortunately. And so the spiritual person can know and understand the things of God. In regard to God, no one can judge uh, the spiritual-minded person because we receive our understanding of God from his word, and from the reality of eternity. Look at verse 16. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? So what's the answer? That's from Isaiah. Isaiah asks this question, who has understood the mind of the Lord? And what's the answer? No one. God's really, really smart. He knows all the things, and God is immense. My understanding is, biblically, he's eternal. So say, for example, you start gathering information on God, and so you're collecting information. So you put it into a book. Maybe you would call that the Bible. I don't know. How long would it take for you to plumb the depths of who God is? It would take eternity, and you would not be done yet. It takes all time. So that's what will happen throughout eternity. You will be learning all about God for all of eternity. So think, there's a couple of people, I won't say who they are, try not to look at you who think you know a little bit about God. you followed God for a couple of decades. You've read quite a bit of the Bible, at least the fun parts. Um, and so, you know, I'm trying not to look at you. Um, every now and then we have insights on, about God. You, you, we've lived, we've gone to church, maybe we've gone to some conferences, and we've got some information. We know a little bit, right? We know some stuff. That's great. Right? So, but think about it this way. Right now you're not... I'll say it polite. You're broken. I mean, some of us are really, really smart. I'm not really smart, but, but some of us are really, really smart. But let me just be honest with you. When you compare you today, broken, with you in eternity, you're not great. I'm just, so I'm not, I'm not, some of you look like you're offended. Good, then I'm saying it right. Um, so as smart as you might be, the moment you cross into glory, Current you is not real smart. Do you understand what I'm saying? Glorified you, pretty bright. Pretty smart. Okay, now, so think about this. You're going to spend eternity, not broken you, glorified you, learning about God, and eternity from now, which I don't know how long that is, but it's about an eternity. Eternity from now, you won't be done learning about God. Okay? So broken you 
has done a couple of Bible studies and is pretty jazzed about what you know. Isn't that kind of funny? Like, like we haven't even scratched the surface. The Bible is a big book. It's got uh, eight or 900,000 words in the English version. That's a lot of words, okay? It's not, it doesn't even scratch the surface of who this guy is. Does, not even close. The first 20 minutes in heaven, you will more, know more than you have ever known. So who has understood the mind of God? No one. Not on this, not here. But we, what, look what it says. But we, those who are in Christ, we have the mind of Christ. That means God, by his grace, gives us the power of his Holy Spirit that we might understand him. Not merely know facts of him, but understand him. A couple of places, very, very brief, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up. John 16. John 16, verses 7 through 11. Let me read them and just make a couple of comments. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. What do you say? Jesus is standing there talking to his disciples and he says to them, it's to your advantage if I leave. Isn't that weird? Wouldn't you think it would be to your advantage if he hung out? But he says, and I'm going to trust him because he always tells the truth, he says, it's to your advantage if I leave. So the question is, why? That seems ridiculous. Why don't you hang out? He says this, if I do not go away, the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. So God had determined that when Jesus was here, that Jesus would be the presence of God with his people, that when Jesus leaves, then he would send the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. So Jesus is saying it's to your advantage if I leave so that you can have God's presence in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. If I go, I will send him to you. That's the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings you to the place of repentance and understanding, I have broken God's ways and need to be restored to him by faith. It is the Holy Spirit that does that. So, if in your life, you can think to a moment in your life where you put your faith in God for forgiveness, why is it that you came to that place where you said, I need to be forgiven? It was not because of you, it was the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin. He shows us not only that we have sinned, but he shows us that our sin was bad enough we need Christ's work to bring forgiveness. So it's the Holy Spirit that does that. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us to that place. The, the Spirit is the one who brings conviction of sin that leads to repentance. Nobody can do that. We can do guilt trips. I mean, we're pretty good at that. I mean, some of us have lettered in high school in guilt trips. We can do that all day. But making somebody feel guilty does not make them go say, I need Jesus. The only way for somebody to come to the point where they say, I need Jesus to save me from my sin is for the Holy Spirit to work in their heart and for their eyes to be open to that. That's what the Bible is teaching us. The only way to understand God is to have God open my eyes to him. Okay, let's go back a couple of chapters in John to John 14. 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, just in case you had lost track, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So now you're a believer. You put your faith in Jesus. The Holy Spirit worked in your heart and you trust Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Save me from my sin. Give me eternal life. Yeah. All right. And now you've decided, and I'm grateful for this, you've decided, you know what, that Greg, he, he said something last week. He said, I ought to read my Bible five days out of seven for 15 minutes. Didn't I say that? All right. And some of you are still mad about it. <laughs> you only read your Bible three days last week, but you're mad that I'm letting people get out of two. So you're reading your Bible. Maybe you're in Leviticus. I don't know. And all of a sudden you say, oh, okay, there's something about God there I haven't seen before. And you call up your friend. Or maybe if you're younger, you put your Bible on a table 
and you put a mug of coffee next to it and you take a picture of it and you post it on <laughs> social media and then you write your brilliant insight. Just me and Jesus today, we found out. I discovered this about Jesus. The Holy Spirit apparently wasn't involved at all. Holy Spirit, like he wasn't there as far as we're concerned. We have to understand when we read our Bible and we are moved to affection for God, when we are moved to ongoing conviction of sin, when we are moved to realize we're not serving others in our lives, when we are moved to want to love God more, whenever that happens, that's not you. That's the Holy Spirit doing what he said he would do. Opening your eyes, bringing to mind the truth of God's word. He does these at terribly inconvenient times. Occasionally, you will decide you want to do something naughty. And it's not that bad. Your neighbor is much worse or, you know, your brother-in-law is worse. But you've put it on your calendar and you've saved up for it. And um, some of you are acting like you don't do this. Stop it. And, 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 and you're thinking, you're like, okay, no, I know it's... But, but then, all of a sudden, things start... You ever had that happen? You're like, I'm going to, and then it starts popping in your head. That little red light starts to spin. Nobody? Do you have the Holy Spirit? I mean, <laughs> so it, it just, it's about, and here's the thing about the Holy Spirit. It's just my experience. I'm, you know, take this for what it is. Uh, it, it's a, are, are we sure this is where we're going? Just want to, hey, quick, quick time out, and then a verse will pop in your head you haven't read in 30 years. Wait, what? I didn't, I didn't even memorize that verse. And then we say, shut up. And what does he do? He shuts up. But, and we say, well, where's God in my life? And, and, and we go through these days, and every now and then something will pop into our head, and, and we're so material, materialistic. I, I don't mean greedy. I mean, we're so connected with the, the things we can see, taste, and touch. We assume that God would never just pop things into my head. And we're going through our life, and, and we, you know, I ought to... I had to give them a call. And we assume that's just our head. We, we assume the Holy Spirit would never prompt us to serve someone. And, 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 and slowly we just sort of, we shove the Holy Spirit back into a closet. And the thing about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit will let us. And what the Bible is telling us, the Holy Spirit was given to us to teach us all things as we're making our way through life, to bring to mind the truth of God's word. And more than just truths about God, but as I'm navigating Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, the Holy Spirit is taking the truth of God's word and he's showing us in our day. Now, are we sure we're going to go this way? It, so really, we're going we're to treat them that way and, and bringing those things to mind. And one of the things we can do as an act of worship is we can say, okay, I'm going to start yielding to these promptings of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, it is the Spirit that our, uh, enables our minds to consider the things of God, the truth of God, and His gospel. Okay, uh, let's go. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. We have the mind of Christ. This is the goal. The Holy Spirit in our life, by the, by the power of God, gives us the ability to see our world, the people around us in our lives, in the perspective of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we're not home yet. We're not saved. We're not, uh, we're not in heaven yet. We're not glorified yet. I mean, I mean, look at us, right? We struggle with sin. We struggle with doubt. We struggle with uh, all kinds of things in our life. So this is always a tension. If you want to read what that's like, read Romans chapter 7, where Paul describes the, the conflict between his flesh and the spirit in his life. But we have the mind of Christ. This means if by faith we seek the Lord, he will open our eyes to what our life needs to look like when yielded to the power of the Holy Spirit. Why is it so hard to understand God? Because we don't want his help. And the only way to understand God is to have his help. A couple of things and then we'll, we'll close. Independence from God is our default. As a believer, if you, if you say, you know what, I trust Jesus and I'm a Christian, we still need to understand independence from God is our default setting. We're always going to be fighting that. We, we want to do things on our own. We wish that God would, God, our relationship with God would pay off more quickly. We're annoyed that God doesn't see our thing, things our way. Have you ever had conversations about God where he's, he just doesn't get it? I hope you have. I, I do it all the time. This is normal. That just, that just brings to light the reality that, that we want independence from God. And this is one of the places where we can yield to God in worship and say, you know what, Lord, I want to be independent of you. 
Give me a heart that wants to rely on you. A life of dependence on God is what we're shooting for. So that's helpful. And one thing to understand about God and why it's hard to understand God is our default setting is we want to be independent uh, of God. Um, I don't know how to say this politely. Uh, all of us have opinions, right? I have an opinion or 12. Um, here's the thing. We might say something silly like this. I love Jesus, and I have this opinion about how the people around me ought to behave, about how my neighbors ought to behave. I have this opinion about what my church ought to look like. I have this opinion about how my dog should behave. I have this opinion on how cars should function or how traffic should function or not function. Um, I have this opinion about how the cities I live in ought to operate and how the country I live in ought to operate. So I have opinions. Do you have any opinions on these subjects? I'm sure you do. So what we say is, I'm a believer and I have those opinions. So therefore, it naturally follows that my opinions are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And to be wrong, which means have a different opinion, is to be unsaved. Or something. Obviously, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Because anybody who has the Holy Spirit would agree with me. What we want to start doing is yielding to the Holy Spirit and, and in a little bit of humility saying, I don't know all the things. I, I need to rest in the Holy Spirit, have him tell me through his word and through the experience of relationship with others, not merely what my opinion ought to be, but here's a question, how do I value people in my life? The, the kinds of questions that Jesus answers irritates people. People ask Jesus questions about taxation. And he said, give to God what's God and give to Caesar what's Caesar. This is, a, this is a silly question. You're trying to get out of stuff. And God says, give away your stuff. He, he answers questions. And somebody says, well, 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 who's my neighbor? Because we ask questions. What's the bare minimum I have to do to keep God off my back? And Jesus says, how about treat all the people like neighbors? So what he tells us to do is not walk into a room and figure out what's the bare minimum I have to accomplish. He says walk into a room and say, how do I serve the most people and give up the most of who I am to allow others to have it their way? Maybe our homes would function a little differently if we had an attitude of service instead of what is mine. And this is what, this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. We want, the, we want God to tell us what's the right way of thinking and God instead tells us the right way of being. He says, how are you treating others? How are you serving others? What, is, what does sin look like in my life? Am I okay with it or am I turning that over to the Holy Spirit? How often do we say, I think, instead of, I wonder what God's into in this moment? One last thing and I'll end with this. Um, and I'm serious, I'm not just kidding. Knowing how the Holy Spirit works in the lives of, of people... Every single person I know, every person I know who claims the name of Christ has many, many people in their life, some of them very, very close to them, and you wonder about their spiritual condition. And in fact, many times our hearts break, don't they? When we have found hope and, and a firm footing in the gospel of Christ and people we care very deeply for do not value Christ. And so we, we wonder, what should we say? What should we do? What's the trick? What's, what, what, what's the magic potion where I can wave this or give this thing or send this Facebook post because that always works. <laughs> how, do I, how do I convince the people I care about to value Jesus the way I do? Isn't that a frustration we all have? And what's the Bible tell us? We can't. There, there, there's nothing we can do. Whose job is that? It's the Holy Spirit's. There's no magic potion. There's no magic formula. There's no magic show to watch. There's no magic preacher to listen to. There's no magic book to read. There's the Holy Spirit who takes the truth of the gospel and opens a person's heart. So what, what does that give us the opportunity to do? Pray like there's no time left. We talked about this at Men's Bible Study on Wednesday. A guy named George Mueller. Have you heard of George Mueller? Right. So 
uh, the story was told in the, in the lesson we were doing, uh, he prayed for five of the young boys in his orphanage that they would come to salvation. And one of them got saved within 18 months. The last one to get saved, he prayed for for 40 years. In addition to that, that wasn't in the study, but also the, I read this in a, in a biography of George Mueller. He had a very, very close friend of his that wasn't a believer, and he prayed for this friend for his entire life. And that friend never received the Lord until he intended George Mueller's funeral, where he heard the gospel and got saved. So, so we do tell people the truth. We do tell people they need forgiveness. We do tell people the gospel. We do tell people that that Jesus saved a sinner like us and has given us hope. We give a reason for the hope that we have in us, and it's, it's Jesus. But at the end of the day, a person's response to the gospel lies in the hands of the Holy Spirit alone, and in, in our role in that place is to pray like there's no time left. And don't stop praying until he calls us home. Keep praying. And perhaps God will have grace on that person and send the Holy Spirit to prompt their hearts to believe. God, we thank you for your love that you have shown us in Jesus. And God, we have to admit the arrogance and pride in our hearts that we thought because we went to a particular church or attended enough services or read enough scripture that it was because of our brilliance or our discipline that we know you. But your Bible tells us the truth, God. We know you because you are kind enough to send us your Holy Spirit. God, would you give us a humility to keep seeking to know you better as we yield to the truth of the gospel in our lives each and every day? God, would you give us hearts that are sensitive to the prompting of the Holy Spirit when we hear your voice telling us to do something or telling us to, to not do something? God, would you give us the willingness to, to obey when your spirit moves in us? And God, we especially pray for those people right now in our lives that we know need hope in Jesus. And, and we've done all the things we know how to do and, and they just seem cold to it. They just seem disinterested. or We don't know what to do and our heart breaks. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move in their hearts. Bring conviction. Bring them to repentance that they may trust you for forgiveness. God, we can't wait till you come. Can't wait till we see you face to face and we're home with you. Until that time, God, give us faithfulness to the very end. In Jesus' name, amen. Just stand up with us as we close with a song.